Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the book of nature. I realize with a title like The Book of Nature, it's going to sound like a benign episode, but this could be, for some listeners, the most controversial, inappropriate conversations I've ever done. At least it's possible. I'm going to do a little bit of an introductory sort of laying out the arguments from one side and the other, and I think by the time I'm done, it'll be pretty clear that I'm heading into territory that maybe a lot of people who are Christian uh, wouldn't go. Inappropriate Conversations is about putting together politics, religion, pop culture, sex, drugs, rock and roll, that sort of thing. But this one's going to focus a little bit more squarely on religion, but it's going to ask questions that I think that the non-religious world have been asking of Christians for quite some time and finding their answers to be unsatisfactory. Of course, in typical Inappropriate Conversations style, I'm going to answer the questions in a way which I believe are going to be totally satisfactory, but nevertheless somewhat confrontational to both sides of what I, what's probably a false dichotomy. So let me start there with false dichotomy. One of the ones that I want to deal with today is this notion of science versus religion. My perspective is that that's a completely false dichotomy. A few years ago, I appeared on an episode of The Admiral's Table from the now recently faded Starbase 66 podcast and sort of described it this way in the sense of saying that this science and religion controversy makes no sense to me because it's a lot like what would happen if you were having a conversation during a meal or at the end of a meal, a meal that was particularly compelling and trying to come to an understanding of what can account for a great meal at a great restaurant. Science would tend to look at the meal itself as being nothing more than a combination of specific ingredients put together in a particular way and cooked in a particular way over a particular period of time and thereby uh, ca and captured in a recipe so that it's replicatable and can be proven. And that explains the meal. And religion would simply point to the chef and call it good. Perhaps both of those answers are a little bit incomplete, but neither one of them is wrong. So I feel like the science versus religion debate is a false dichotomy. I also think that the entire old earth creation versus new earth creation debate is really comes down to about uh, just a silly question, I guess is how I would word it. My perspective on time and the nature of time has been covered before pretty well in Inappropriate Conversations 61 and later in 143. I've spoken about how far I'm willing to go in accepting the absolute truth of the concept of uh, human perception of time. To me, old earth versus young earth conversations within creationist camps almost gets to the point of being a silly discussion about how old God is. The question itself doesn't make sense, implying that there's an age question to God's creativity puts God inside time. And I'm going to get to why that's inappropriate here in a little bit. The other question that I've got is simply the matter of how do you apply a sequence? What I mean by that is the notion of whether or not we believe as Christians, and this is sort of focusing on the Christian side of my audience, whether we believe that God is incapable of granting the impact of something to the cause and effect relationship if the thing hasn't happened yet. It's the heart and soul of this argument that I want to share 
from an author named William A. Dembski in a book he published in 2009 called The End of Christianity, Finding a Good God in an Evil World, is the notion that God is, of course, as an all-powerful being, perfectly capable of holding humanity responsible for sins committed in a fall millions, if not billions of years, before that fall from grace actually happened. One of the reasons we know this is that in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament goes on and on and on through Hebrews chapter 11 about the nature of faith going all the way back to the very beginning of Hebrew scriptures, giving example after example and making it clear that these people who lived thousands of years before Christ had been given the benefit of their faith in a Christ who had not yet come and that had experienced the full range of atonement even though Christ had not yet been crucified and resurrected. Quoting from the book of Hebrews chapter 11, which of course I did before at some length in Inappropriate Conversations 150, opening the scriptures. So I'll just use a couple of verses here and not go into quite that level of detail. In fact, maybe one verse will suffice. Starting with verse 13. It was in faith that all these persons died. They did not receive the things God had promised, but from a long way off they saw them and welcomed them and admitted openly that they were foreigners and refugees on the earth. Those who say such things make it clear that they are looking for a country of their own. So the notion in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, is that the faith of people like Abraham and Noah was counted toward them and gave them a relationship with a Christ who had not yet come and gave them the full privileges of an atonement that had not yet occurred. So if God is capable of retroactively rewarding people for faith in a Christ that according to a linear timeline had not come, had not shared his wisdom, had not experienced the things that he experienced, then certainly it's possible to believe that God could also hold all of creation accountable for a fall long before the first humans were on the earth to commit the sin that would lead to such a fall. We'll get to that idea then of how to apply a sequence to events when you're not dealing with a being in God who is subject to the whims of what we might call time. The other question I think that I want to deal with is what has God said that's outside of the Bible? Anymore, we're dealing with a cultic version of Christianity, particularly right-wing evangelical Christianity, that might have just taken a big gasp that I might believe that I'm about to commit the biggest heresy they've ever heard before by suggesting that God communicates to his flock outside the words in the Bible, that the words in the Bible may be the word of God. And you can attach any level of inerrancy you want to that concept. It doesn't change the fact that as a Christian, as a theologically conservative Christian, we know that God communicates outside the Bible. We know, among other things, that he communicates through the book of nature, through creation. In fact, you might find that a lot of people get obsessed about uh, the notion of creation versus evolution. Well, they're obsessed about the understanding that God has revealed his glory to us through creation. Paul talks about this in Acts 17. So that concept is biblical, even though it points us to a direction that's outside the Bible. And what I want to talk about is the book of nature from the perspective of there being more than one way of God revealing himself to us. It isn't, in other words, just the Bible. Science is a good way of looking at it. If we talk about the book of nature from the perspective of scientific discovery, especially the earliest era of that, the moment of observation and testing 
what some of the early fathers of science would have called reading the mind of God, the studies they were doing, uh, going through and trying to classify all of the creatures into mammalian versus, you know, crustacean and all that other sort of stuff, reading the mind of God. And one of the things I think that perhaps the church is most perhaps even subliminally aware of to be threatened by this idea that you can find God in nature, perhaps was revealed in an article that was published just this week on Huffington Post, written by Rebecca Adams. The headline for the story was, Religion Loses When It Competes With Beautiful Nature, Study Suggests, published on uh, August 7th, 2015. Picking up at the end of the first paragraph, it says this, Religion studies have found that on an individual level, many people connect to the sacred through their natural environments. Researchers from Baylor University explored what this spiritual pull toward nature means for religion on a larger scale in a new study, which investigated a central question. Are people less drawn to organize religion when they have more access to the magnificence of the natural world? They analyzed 3,107 U.S. counties and saw how many people in each county affiliated with an organized religion using data from the religious congregations and membership study. Religious affiliation, according to the study, doesn't mean that people necessarily attended church, temple, or synagogue regularly. It means they identified with a religion. Then the researchers looked at each of the county's lakes, hills, water features, and climate using a 1999 natural amenities scale from the United States Department of Agriculture. What they found seems to support Henry David Thoreau's experiment. Counties with higher levels of natural amenities were associated with lower rates of religious affiliation. But I want to suggest that just as I don't believe science and religion are in any kind of conflict with each other and that, that there is an answer to a new earth versus an old earth paradigm, and it's kind of, to the degree both of you are obsessed with time, you're both wrong, I don't believe that there's a book of nature versus book of scripture competition to be had either. In many ways, there may be a counterbalancing notion that those are both right, that if concepts of God's role in time are almost always going to be wrong, because they misunderstand time, and concepts like omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence, in this case, anybody who tries to use one book against the other is going to make a mistake. This might be the right time to kind of put a reminder out there that the last Friday in August, August 28th, I will be live, it's something you can catch on the internet, a Walk the Earth podcast. Walk the Earth 29 should come out here in a week or so, just like a typical Walk the Earth, but Walk the Earth 30 is going to initially be performed live. You can find it on pride48.com, either from the website or using the Tuned In Radio app. It's going to be at 5 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, 2 o'clock on the Pacific. And one of the things I'm going to talk about, maybe just briefly, in that 30-minute show, is my Sunday school experience. In the church that we were attending at the time, we were Sunday school teachers. And Sunday school teachers, my wife and I, and actually a couple, another couple in the church who are friends of ours, focusing very intentionally on people who were young, but out of high school. It was a post-high group, as it was originally envisioned, because I think all of us understood from our own church experiences that a lot of times when you graduate from high school and go off to college, you never come back. Now, it's not that you never come back to Christianity or that you even left, but you may never come back to that home church. And even if you don't move away, sometimes that happens too, because you end up cut off and adrift from the youth group that you'd spent with all those years. And high school graduation has a tendency to create a sort of a diaspora of sorts, where 
your closest friends at school and even your closest friends at church, if your church is located in a place where kids from different schools attend, you know, end up going to different places, uh, two, three hours away or halfway across the country or even halfway across the world to do their university study. This 19, 20, 21-year-old person is no longer really welcome in the youth group. It would probably be an imbalance or an inappropriate mix if you had people who were that age hanging around with people who were you know, under the age of consent, for example. Not to say that there's anything sexual involved or inevitably sexual involved, but it's just it's a bad mix of maturities. And being a little bit too young to teach anybody in junior high or high school, because the age range is too close, but also being way too young to necessarily participate fully in what the adult Sunday schools and ministries are. So kind of caught in between. Too old for the thing you used to do. Too young to be a teacher in that realm. Too young, obviously, to be part of the you know, many of the adult Sunday schools. We started our own. And we started our own specifically to make sure that there was a place for those students. And I felt like I might have been, in some ways, perfectly equipped to help teach in that manner. Because one of the things that always stopped me from having much interest in teaching junior high and high school myself, Sunday school or even the youth group or any other capacity, was my tendency to tell people the truth. I've got a few policies that I try to live my life by. One of them is people who want answers ask questions. But that has a corollary to it. The people who ask questions deserve answers. And I wasn't ever comfortable with how much I might have to sugarcoat a really true and maybe even blunt answer to somebody in late junior high or high school who needed that information. If somebody was going to ask me about drugs or alcohol or, or sex or sexual orientation, they were probably, having worked up the courage to ask somebody who was an adult about that, needed an answer. I was okay not putting myself in a position to get the question, but I wasn't okay putting myself in a position to get the question and not being allowed to provide an answer. So the thing that being part of that post-high Sunday school group did was give me, frankly, free reign. You're talking about people who are adults, graduated from high school, legally able to do anything except maybe drink or rent a car. If they had questions about anything, I was perfectly okay to give them an answer. In this class that tended to have an age range of somewhere between 19 and 20 years on the low side and up into the 60s on the high side. And what I found really interesting was sometimes when you'd hit some of the more controversial topics, when things would, you know, get a little bit risky in the classroom, for want of a better expression, it was the younger crowd that would often be the first ones to bail out. I thought that was kind of interesting, because I think even people who were my age and older were not used to somebody actually tackling those kinds of topics. And we did things from a, a complete examination of world religions and not from a how do you evangelize and convert the Hindus perspective, but just really understanding what Hinduism is and how is it different from Jainism and Buddhism, those sort of things. We covered a great range of historic heresy and kind of how did the church deal with heretical views and how, does we, how do we feel today as a modern church about some of those controversies from the past? We dealt with that. But we also watched the movie Saved over the course of maybe three classes, trying to get a less than 90-minute movie in into what might be 30 to 50 minute chunks of a Sunday school hour, watched the movie Saved and discussed it, and some of the questions that that movie raised about what the church ought to be doing and how the church ought to be relating to people who are both homosexual and Christian. So this classroom was fairly controversial, but you know what? It was this topic, the first time that I can think of, where that classroom sort of drew the line, 
this was a conversation that that church, even in its most open-minded Sunday school classroom, did not want to have. I was willing to bring in the book, share it with people, buy extra copies, talked a little bit about doing it as a as a formal study, and we called ourselves unscripted. We really weren't a formal um, study materials coursework kind of class. But I thought this material might actually be worth it. But I was kind of turned down. So this might be the obvious point to ask the question of who the different drummer is going to be this week for a conversation about the book of nature. And I will tell you that first, the uh, different drummer is going to appear at the very end of the show. And second, it is not William Dembski. So I'm going to quote at length from the book, The End of Christianity. I'm going to conduct, in some ways, sort of the Sunday school coursework that I never got a chance to conduct a few years back. The book came out in 2009. But there's a good reason why I'm hesitant to talk about William A. Dembski as a different drummer. And it's a lot of the additional material. So I'm a big believer that you can have good things to say and be right on target, intellectually, theologically, scientifically, philosophically, on an issue and still have problematic points of view elsewhere in your field of study, in your discipline. And any more you get to the point where we've got a, I don't want to call it political correctness, because I don't think that's a valid term for any of this, but you tend to feel like somebody has to pass a litmus test, I guess would be the way I'd word it, that unless your views are orthodox, or at least in agreement with me on every single topic, well, then you're out. And if I have a different point of view about, creation versus evolution than what Dembski may have. The fact that he is staunchly anti-evolution, maybe for some folks that would be enough. That's all it takes for me to dismiss you. My number one issue with including Dembski as a different drummer is that I don't know whether he fits the criteria of blazing the trail. He's appeared in you know other media to support his book, but the place I encountered him first was on the Bible Answer Man broadcast from Christian Research Institute. Hank Hanegraaff is a former different drummer, but a different drummer from the very first year of the show, and maybe the first one I called out as somebody that I was a little worried about, didn't necessarily line up with him politically, seemed like the kind of person who might go off the deep end if Obama got reelected, for example. I stopped tuning into his show, in part, because I didn't want to hear how he might react to the lead-up to that election in 2012, or the results of that election in 2012. So, different drummer that had some question marks, I guess I'd put it that way. I think probably I got specific with some of my concerns about the Christian Research Institute. Back in Inappropriate Conversation 72, Truth or Consequences for Christians. Too often, too many Christians don't do that well when it comes to the truth. And here's kind of the issue with Dembski. In the Wikipedia article about him, there's a subheading for the Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary Flood Controversy. Among the other things that Dembski does, and taking a willfully progressive view, perhaps not his own natural theological view, in the book The End of Christianity, was argued that, uh, that a Christian can reconcile an old earth creationist view with a literal reading of Adam and Eve in the Bible, and still accept the scientific consensus of a earth that's at least 4.5 billion years old. He further argued that Noah's flood might be a phenomenon limited to just the Middle East that if you were somebody who lived in that part of the world and a massive shift in the way water was distributed were to occur, how would you distinguish that from a worldwide flood? If something as massive as a 100-mile radius was suddenly covered with 
30, 40 feet of water in a geological event of some sort, if you were writing the story of that, it would certainly appear, or sharing an oral tradition, the story of that, it would certainly appear as if the whole world was underwater. Well, how he managed to write the book he wrote and still work at Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary is in and of itself an amazing story. The dean of the School of Theology had to release a white paper, basically through the Seminary Center for Theological Research, defending Dembski as being, quote, within the bounds of orthodoxy and critiquing others for misunderstanding the book. But this paper included Dembski's statement admitting error regarding Noah's flood. See, the president of the university, a young earth creationist, said that it was Dembski's questionable statements that came to light and he convened a meeting with Dembski and several high-ranking administrators at the seminary. And at that meeting, Dembski was quick to admit that he was wrong about the flood, that he wanted to backtrack, that he wanted to ensure that he wasn't causing doubts into the trustworthiness of the Bible. In other words, the head of the university, putting his career and his job on the line, threatened him, and he caved. Now, that in and of itself could make you something of a, of a martyr-type figure. But... Here's the issue. Dembski had earlier participated in a documentary called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. It was released in 2008. And in there, that documentary goes on and on about how hard it is to be an intelligent design advocate in the university system because of witch hunts and being rooted out and being forced to uh, renounce your own views because it's out of line with the popular consensus among scientists. But how is that fundamentally different from this theological conversation that the you know, president of the seminary that he was teaching at got him to renounce his views about we don't really know whether the flood was a worldwide underwater situation or just a worldwide, quote-unquote, underwater situation from the perspective of the people who lived in a certain part of the Middle East. So I don't have a sense that when it comes to defending truth with the ferocity, <laughs> for want of a better word, that I would like, that he measures up. This is in some ways similar, of course, to Galileo, caving on certain issues to make sure that his punishment would be something he could survive at the hands of the Pope hundreds of years ago. But I think there's more on the plus side of Galileo's ledger. Let's put it that way. Or maybe I'm just not prepared this summer to put in two different drummers who caved uh, under that kind of pressure. So I am, for the first time in a very, very long time, going to have a different drummer who at least seemingly has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the topic. If I were to make a joke, I could downplay it and say, well, we're not going to have much of a topic today. We're, we're just going to look at the question of time, the problem of evil and pain, science versus religion, the age of the universe, the retroactive power of faith and therefore the retroactive power of sin, and even an exploration of, of a dichotomy within theology itself, this notion of dogma versus experience. Just that, nothing that major, nothing any other podcast on politics, religion, and popular culture wouldn't jump at the opportunity to discuss. And when we come back, I'm going to let Dembski, although not a different drummer, have his say. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. 
Having spent quite a bit of time doing the lay of the land from my perspective, I suppose it makes sense at this point to provide the lay of the land from Dembski's perspective, and I'm going to do so with a handful, maybe even a little bit more than a handful, of quotes from this one book. To me, there are two potentially very controversial issues, certainly some intellectually challenging concepts that have to be discussed to get our head around the idea that Dembski is trying to present in The End of Christianity. One of them is this notion that it is possible if a being that is outside time by its very nature as a necessary being could make a decision about what to do from a cause and effect perspective where the effect precedes the cause. Could, for example, Abraham be credited with his faith in Christ before there was a Christ walking on the earth? And could, for example, uh, natural evils, just the whole uh, brutality of nature, be brought in to creation at a time before Adam and Eve that was still the cause and effect result of the sin of Adam and Eve? That's, that's a very difficult question. And to me, the, the most important point he raises is this notion of a segregated area. We take for granted when we read the Bible, especially when we read the early parts of Genesis and Exodus, by putting on a very simplistic hat, by reading Exodus, for example, as if uh, Charlton Heston is actually the star of the show. It's a naive worldview that we bring to the book. And we do the same thing with Genesis. I remember a Books You Should Read episode years and years ago on Simply Syndicated. It may still be available at uh, www.simplysyndicated.com, if only through Simply Everything, which is a subscription service through them that you can use to stream everything, pretty much everything they've ever done. This recording, uh, Books You Should Read, is a crowd-sourced book review show, so not the regular host that's Simply Syndicated. I believe Luke Burridge is the person who did the review of the Book of Genesis, and did a really nice job, especially at the beginning of his, of his review, talking about the notion that there's two different creation stories in Genesis. That the story of creation is told once, and then it's turned around and told again. I'm going to get to some of the details behind that, but we often look at this Garden of Eden with this naive notion that the entire world was like that. That on in some level we kind of read it as if the entire planet was Eden, and then... Adam and Eve did the whole, you know, serpent and, you know, fruit thing, and then the whole planet went to hell in a heartbeat. But that's not really what's described in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis describes what we might call a segregated area. The Garden of Eden, presumably on this planet, somewhere near the Middle East, was separated from the rest of the planet. And when they sinned and were deemed to be punished for that, they were cast out of that area into the rest of the planet, the unsegregated part of the planet, which certainly allows for the interpretation that there was a great deal of natural evil in the earth at the time that Adam and Eve were created. And the Garden of Eden was a, an exception to the rule, an oasis in the desert. Here's what Dembski says. To understand how the fall occurs chronologically, and how God nonetheless allows natural evils to rage before it, we need to take seriously that the drama of the fall unfolds in a segregated area. Genesis chapter 2 verse 8 refers to this area as a garden planted by God, i.e. the Garden of Eden. Now ask yourself, why would God need to plant a garden in a perfect world untouched by natural evil? In a perfect world, wouldn't the whole world be a garden? And why, once humans sin, must they be expelled from this garden and live outside it, where natural evil is present. I would say, where natural evil is already present. Now, 
is natural evil already present because of some complete failure of theodicy and Christianity. Theodicy being this notion of dealing with the problems of evil and pain and God's role and how to manage the potential accountability for that. The traditional Christian worldview is that the responsibility for sin and therefore the responsibility for pain and evil is Adam and Eve. It's that original fall. The fall of Adam is where it all came from. But the argument that Dembski makes is that that fall happened, God knowing in an, the sense of an eternal now that it was going to happen, had already allowed the universe to fall around it and had given Adam a segregated area to where he wasn't already facing the consequences of his actions and he had the free will to not do so. Had Adam and Eve behaved differently, then perhaps the area outside of the garden would not be any different from the area inside the garden. But if the area outside the garden, if you just accept the mythology at face value, if the area outside of the garden wasn't different, why a garden? Why so carefully segregated? Why so actually so carefully guarded as it's described in the book of Genesis? This is, of course, crucial because the entire idea behind young earth creationism is built upon two pillars. One is a very naive idea that God is somehow bound by the same time-space continuum that the rest of us are. It's an insufficient comprehension of the idea of necessary being. And therefore, it takes all references to time that appear anywhere in Scripture, is that they have to be about our time, and not about this other notion that I'll introduce in a minute about God's time. The other one, though, and then thereby they go through the Bible as if it's some sort of a science textbook, and try to estimate and add up all of the years and do the math backwards and say, well, this is when everything had to have started. But why would you hold on to that principle so ferociously in the light of tremendous amounts of scientific discovery and inquiry that seem to be revealing the fact that the universe is much, much older than we probably could even sit down and count? Most of us would have to commit better a big chunk of a lifetime to count to 4.5 billion. And that's not even the universe. That's just the earth. Well, the number one reason I think that young earth creationists are so obsessed with there being a young earth and they hold on to it as tightly as they do is because it seems to be in their mind through their understanding of cause and effect and their willingness to limit God's power to human understandings of time. It seems to be the only way that you can hold Adam and Eve accountable for every bad thing that's ever happened, including bad things in nature, uh, the violence of nature, the predatory nature of certain creatures, including parasites, disease, all has to be Adam's fault or Adam and Eve's fault. And for them, they can't comprehend the notion that everything that happened well before that period, for millions of years before, could still be as much Adam and Eve's fault as the behavior of Noah could be a credit to his faith in a Christ that had not yet come. So this is the theological issue, and granted, probably deeper water than you would expect to get from a typical, maybe, religion podcast. Now, Inappropriate Conversations doesn't pretend to be a religion podcast. I don't even consider this episode to be squarely hitting the religion mark, because I'm here, actually, to provide not just theological criticism, but perhaps in some cases some political criticism, particularly toward people who have a young earth mentality. The more harshly they express that point of view the more wrong they are, because the scientific evidence, again, is significant enough that the amount of gymnastics people who consider themselves to be both scholars and young earth creationists have to do borders on the silly. Here's Dembski addressing this very issue. It only takes a few sips from the ocean to realize it's salty. 
The persistent failure of young Earth creationists' attempts to account for the appearance of age in the universe should therefore give us pause. Young Earth creationists, it would seem, hold to a recent creation not because of, but in spite of, the scientific evidence. To be sure, one can question the constancy of nature if one has good independent grounds for doing so. But even here, one questions nature's constancy on a case-by-case basis, sizing up particular instances where nature seems to have changed its habits. On the other hand, questioning the constancy of nature as a whole does not seem possible. For in the very act of questioning, one must hold constant the backdrop against which this question is posed. Questioning nature's constancy in general would deny this backdrop and thus be self-defeating. To determine the constancy of nature for theological gain preserves the integrity of neither science nor religion. God gave humanity two primary sources of revelation about himself, the world that he created and the scripture that he inspired. These are also known as general and special revelation, or sometimes as the book of nature and the book of scripture. God can thus be viewed as the author of two books. The book of nature reveals what God did in creating, structuring, and guiding the natural world. It reveals what is sometimes called the law of creation. The book of scripture reveals what God did in redemption history to restore humanity and the world to a right relation with himself. It reveals what is sometimes called the law of redemption. We study science to understand the first of these books, theology to understand the second. Dembski. This introduces, though, what I think is the controversy we sometimes find within theology over that line between what I would call dogma versus experience. I'm going to totally paraphrase here. I'm going to be doing enough reading, just focusing on Dembski, in fact, that I don't necessarily want to do another reading per se. But when you get fairly deep into the book Mere Christianity, I think it probably is the beginning of the last section of C.S. Lewis's uh, seminal work, Lewis talks a little bit about the importance of theology, but he begins by recounting some pushback he received from somebody who had maybe done some military service, seen some horrific things, but was particularly moved through his experiences by just standing on the shore, being overwhelmed, for want of a better word, by the power, majesty, and beauty of the ocean and the beach, and just encountering that firsthand. And this man makes an argument to Lewis that he doesn't have any time for that theology nonsense because he has experienced firsthand the Holy Spirit. He feels that he has encountered God, and in part having encountered God through nature, which ties back to that Huffington Post article I shared earlier, that to him, the difference between theology and experience is the difference between a map and standing at the ocean with your feet on the sand, hearing and feeling the waves rolling upon the shore. One of them, that experience, would have been how this man would have described the infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God moving in, with, and through him. And to him, all of this talk, all these apologetics, all these scripture readings, all these arguments, everything referring to the book of scripture, far inferior to the book of nature, and of relatively little value. C.S. Lewis took him to heart, and said, I see exactly what you're saying, that no one would trade a trip to the beach for the opportunity to spend the afternoon looking at a map of the beach, or even pictures of the beach, most likely. But he said, here's the thing. If you have no idea 
how to get to the beach. If you do not know where you are, and don't know where the beach is, and don't know what roads to use, this map that you denigrate would suddenly become extremely valuable. Theology for theology's sake is of very little value. But theology for the purpose of bringing people into relationship with, with God through the Holy Spirit is of incredible value. Because that is how most people go from wherever they are to the beach that this war veteran described. So now that I've allowed Dembski to begin introducing these parallels that he uses throughout his book, in this case, the book of nature versus the book of scripture, I'm going to let him introduce a couple more, which I think are really crucial, starting with the definition of what we might call the word word. This is Dembski. For the ancient Greeks, Logos was never meant, Logos was never merely a linguistic entity. Today, when we think word, we often visualize a string of symbols written on a sheet of paper. This is not what the Greeks meant by Logos. Logos, for them, was a much broader concept. Consider its following meanings from Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon. The word by which the inward thought is expressed. Speech. The inward thought or reason itself. Reason. Reflection. Deliberation. Choice. Account, consideration, regard, inquiry, relation, proportion, analogy, harmony or balance, calculation, reckoning, mathematics, a reasonable ground, a condition, evidence or truth. Logos is therefore exceedingly a rich notion encompassing the entire life of the mind because all of those things can accurately be described as Logos. So Logos doesn't just mean word. We're, at the, we're suffering from the limitation of an English translation. kind of makes me laugh. I saw a meme the other day. probably wasn't a meme. It was actually a real ad or a real classified ad where some church had taken out an advertisement to talk about when you're ready to leave all those you know, misguided churches who keep polluting the one true word of God in the King James English with all their, you know, their newfangled Greek interpretations as failing to understand completely that English is actually a shadow of the language used in the original Greek, Latin, and Aramaic because those languages were far more rich, had more definitions of words like word and words like time. And we all know the Bible wasn't written in English, or at least we should. So Dinsky does a similar exercise with the meaning of time, quoting him. To see how the fall can affect not only the future, but also the past, we need to understand how God acts across time, or trans-temporally. Scripture teaches that creation is a progression of affected words spoken by God. In creating the world, God says one thing, then another, building on what he just said, and so on. This progression has an inherent logic, because of the effect of one word depends logically on the prior effect of others. E.g., the creation of fish presupposes the creation of water. This logic has traditionally been called the order of creation. We can think of the order of creation as history from the vantage of divine intention and action. In this top-down view of history, certain divine intentions and actions are logically prior to others. Logical priority, rather than temporal priority, defines history for God. History from the divine perspective therefore contrasts with our ordinary bottom-up view of history, which we may refer to as a natural history. Natural history confines history to a space and time and sees the logic of history as determined by physical causality rather than by divine intention. 
This distinction between the order of creation and natural history reflects a fundamental distinction in the nature of time. In English, we have just one word for time. But the Greek of the New Testament had two, chronos and kairos. According to Arndt and Gingrich's standard lexicon of New Testament Greek, chronos denotes mere duration, whereas kairos denotes time with a purpose, especially a divine purpose. Thus, in defining kairos, Arndt and Gingrich characterize it as a welcome time, the right, proper, favorable time, and the time of crisis. The special role of Kairos in fulfilling divine purposes is reflected in the liturgy of the Eastern Orthodox Church, which begins the deacon calling to the congregation, It is time for the Lord to act, signifying that in worship, temporality and eternity intersect. Two kinds of time, I would say, coming together. So having introduced a couple of dualities, different understandings of the word logos, different understandings of the words for time, Here's the other one that I think is really crucial. Uh, in a chapter that is at least initially devoted to the ideas of Stephen Covey, Dembski writes this. In The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, leadership expert Stephen Covey offers an insight into creation that is at once obvious and profound. Quote, All things are created twice. There is a mental or first creation and a physical or second creation to all things. Ending the Covey quote. Creation always starts with an idea and ends with a thing. Anything achieved must first be conceived. Creation is thus a process bounded by conception at one end and realization at the other. The dual aspect of creation is so obvious that it is so often unstated. But anyone who forms a plan to accomplish a purpose operates by this principle of double creation. It is for that reason that I so admired the books you can read episode on Genesis, recorded years ago, because in it, Burridge does a good job of talking about the two creation stories in Genesis. What Dembski does with that is discuss them from the perspective of the first creation, this idea of these days of creation being the idea stage. And the second creation, where Adam and Eve as characters are introduced into the narrative, but starting from the beginning all over again is perhaps more the realization stage. And if you choose to read the book of Genesis literally, I think that's really the only way to do it. But note that once you choose to read the book of Genesis literally in that manner, the concept of days, as in God's days, in this notion of the first, the first version of creation, the idea stage of creation, is absolutely nonsensical. God's time is not like our time. In Inappropriate Conversation 61, I talked about this a little bit, the impermanence of time, and the notion that if you want to hold God accountable for living in the time stream that we live in, if, if cause and effect, if, if that temporal notion of time is God's time, then God simply cannot exist. God doesn't exist if he has to exist in time, and I cover that argument in great detail in Inappropriate Conversation 61. I also, in the later show, looking at the uh, verticality of time, Inappropriate Conversations 143, do perhaps a better job of talking about what I really think is true. And what I think is true, is, at least from God's perspective, is that time doesn't exist as we know it. It's more this idea of an eternal now. And it is the same quote-unquote now that Adam and Eve behaved as they did within the story. And it's also the same now in which God, taking into account their actions, retroactively back to the beginning of the earth, or maybe even long before the beginning of the earth, 
created a world that reflected the consequences of their behavior. So having introduced at the beginning a few of my ideas about different equivalencies or parallels, and now having done so with Dembski, let me bring home his ideas with just a couple more passages. Within young earth creationism, all divine compensatory action to redress humanity's sin occurs forward in time from the fall. But why should God be limited in that way? Even we are not limited in that way. Granted, our foreknowledge of events is partial, but actuaries, for example, are remarkably accurate at forecasting expected patterns of events. To be sure, God's ability to forecast excels ours. We only see through a glass darkly, as 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says. The actuary cannot know when and where two cars will collide. God knows that and infinitely many other things besides. His foreknowledge is complete and not partial. But even a partial foreknowledge enables insurance companies to respond to future events by setting rates that take into account an expected number of total write-offs from auto collisions in a given year. To assume that God must respond to the fall only with actions that take effect afterward is thus doubly mistaken. First, it commits an unwarranted anthropomorphism by treating God as time-bound in the same way that we are. Second, it fails to recognize that though we ourselves are time-bound creatures, we often respond to events before they occur. God is unbound by time, can therefore respond to events before, during, and after their occurrence. In particular, he can respond to the fall by changing not only the history that comes after it, but also the history that comes before it. Notice how this answers the number one concern that probably causes young earth creationists to believe in a young earth in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence to the contrary. It removes the requirement that God could not possibly have allowed natural evil to occur in the world before Adam and Eve, because God could certainly do this. God cannot be held to violate a causal temporal logic. For that to be true, you must be answerable to that logic. You must be in time and governed by the laws of cause and effect, which we as humans are. See, I'm a big believer in cause and effect. I spend a lot of time in the first you know, 10, 15 episodes of Inappropriate Conversations laying out that part of my worldview. But I'm also a big believer in the concept of necessary being. That is also explored in Inappropriate Conversations 61, talking about the nature of time. It hinges on the idea of understanding what a necessary being is. The problem is that a necessary being is not in time. To be omnipresent and omniscient means to be outside of any sort of causal temporal paradigm. Let me share my last thought from Dembski. kind of brings it all home. The causal temporal logic and the intentional semantic logic constitute the two logics of creation. The causal temporal logic is bottom-up and looks at the world from the vantage of physical causality. The intentional semantic logic is top-down and looks at the world from the vantage of divine purpose and action. The causal temporal logic that underlies the physical world is the organizing principle for natural history, for chronos. The intentional semantic logic that underlies divine action is the organizing principle for the order of creation, for kairos. C.S. Lewis distinguished these logic in terms of facts for the causal temporal logic and meaning for the intentional semantic logic, drawing a distinction between facts and meaning. 
The problem with materialism, for Lewis, is that it attempts to reduce all of reality to the causal temporal logic. And anyone who does this, according to Lewis, is like a dog who, quoting Lewis from his article Transposition, cannot understand pointing. You point to a bit of food on the floor. The dog, instead of looking at the floor, sniffs your finger. A finger is a finger to him, and that is all. His world is all fact and no meaning. And in a period with, when factual realism is dominant, we shall find people deliberately inducing upon themselves this dog-like mind. This extreme limit of self-binding is seen in those who, like the rest of us, have consciousness, yet go about to study human, the human organism as if they did not know it was conscious. C.S. Lewis You may be able to see from that last quote and Dembski's reference to C.S. Lewis that in many ways he's setting up an argument against what we might call naturalistic materialism and in favor of a traditional Christian worldview. I share that traditional Christian worldview, but I don't like seeing the dominoes stacked in this particular manner. And for that reason, I feel quite comfortable making the argument that it is okay for a person to believe or disbelieve in God, but if you disbelieve in God, he can't be to blame for the problem of pain or the evil in the world. And it is okay to believe in either a young or old earth, but if you choose to believe in a young earth, you must realize that you are standing in complete opposition to science and that no amount of gymnastics is going to make that ocean that Dembski referred to any less salty. No, if you want to resolve the problem of pain, if you want to understand the relationship of human free will to sin and suffering, the two things you've got to have, in my opinion, are not just an old earth, not even just a very old earth, but an earth that may be far older than our ability to measure things scientifically has yet discovered and, un and revealed. Because the God we're talking about as being a creator in one sense or another is timeless, not in the sense of being very, very old, but in the sense of being beyond time, the eternal now, always here, and therefore fully capable in that eternal now of seeing everything that happens and how the causes and effects work both chronologically and chirologically. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. I mentioned that I was going to put the different drummer last, and that is coming up. But first, I wanted to play a promo, one of the few I have from a Pride 48 podcast, to use it as an opportunity to put one more reminder out there, that on Friday, August 28th, at 5 o'clock Eastern time, Walk the Earth will be live at pride48.com, and through Pride 48 on Tuned In Radio, it'll be answering the question number 30 in the series of Walk the Earth. I'm a little bit uncomfortable talking about a different drummer that has so little to do with the subject, but I don't know what else to do. I find a great deal of natural beauty in the music of Sandy Owen, so 
and, and maybe even a certain spiritual quality, but that's certainly and absolutely a stretch. I just didn't have a good drummer for this topic. And I didn't necessarily have the perfect topic for Sandy Owen. I'm a big fan of Owen's music. I have several vinyl LPs and a couple of CDs, maybe even three CDs. And from the perspective of my MP3 player, I've got 30 songs that I carry with me on a regular basis, including both his ensemble work and his solo piano work. Essentially, Sandy Owen is a piano composer, arranger, and, of course, performer. Looking at the uh, allmusic.com biography by Greg Prato, says this, Jazz composer and pianist Sandy Owen has issued recordings as both a solo artist and a member of Iliad. Owen became interested in piano when his older brother began taking lessons, and before his 10th birthday, Owen was studying the instrument himself. By the age of 12, Owen had formed a surf group, the Five Keys, along with his brother Ted on drums and Barry on saxophone. By 1965, Owen had become interested in jazz music after hearing the Ramsey Lewis Trio, their cover of The In Crowd, and discovering pianist Les McCann. Jazz became his music of choice while attending the University of California at Irvine, and during the early 70s, Owen formed the outfit Iliad with some of his local friends. Although locally popular, the group failed to land a recording contract with a major label, so the fledgling outfit decided to take matters into their own hands and issued recordings via their own label, Northern Lights Records, 1975's Distances, and 1978's Sapphire House among the releases. I didn't encounter Owen this way, speaking as Greg. I caught up to him probably in the work that he did in the very early 80s, picking back up with the biography. In the late 70s, Owen began working as a freelance computer consultant, but continued to write, perform, and teach music. Owen issued several albums through the 80s on his own Ivory Records label, including such titles as 1982's Soliloquy, and in 1984, Euphonia, Montage, and Carols. 1985 brought Themes in Search of a Movie, and 1986, Boogie Woogie Rhythm and Blues. It lists a few other titles. The most recent recording is the one that I, I've bought most recently myself. It's called One Late Hour with a Steinway. At SandyOwen.com, the biography refers to that album this way. The One Late Hour recording was a single continuous take, and like most of Owen's albums, features almost all original compositions, covering a broad and emotional spectrum. Drawing on influences from jazz, classical, contemporary instrumental, and motion picture soundtracks, Owen's dynamic performances may finally have found their time now with this release, One Late Hour with a Steinway. For me, that was a two-CD set, which created a couple of different interesting perspectives on his work. I would say, though, that for me, my favorite part of Sandy Owen's output is 1984's Montage, that's the CD that I take with me on trips from time to time. I have several tracks of it from, uh, from that on my MP3 player. The Sparkle is actually my favorite song. That's not the only one, of course. Right now, I've got a company that is sending me in the mail a CD of his Carols album, his Christmas release. Seemed like the right time of year to find bargains on Christmas music, and that's exactly what I've done. But it's been forever since I've heard it, since my roommate had the vinyl as a matter of fact. So, in a lot of ways, it's going to be like hearing this particular Sandy Owen album for the very first time, or at least for the first time all over again. The other significant track I'll mention is from Soliloquy, the music that my wife and I had played at our wedding, both in the ceremony, in the formal reception, and the party after the reception. It's kind of carefully controlled by me. I really wanted to make sure that the soundtrack of that most important day in my life at the time, and still one of the most important days of my life, wasn't going to have stuff in it that I was going to regret playing in the background of those memories. And one of the things I did to control that memory 
was include a wedding song that Sandy Owen put on that first sort of solo album on his own Ivory record label. Sandy Owen gives me a great sense of nostalgia. From a time when I had kind of come through high school and through the early part of college, discovered punk and embraced it, was now in the later part of college kind of mixing and matching and saying, you know, it is okay to be a fan of both uh, punk and heavy metal and also be a fan of the light, sort of almost delicate instrumental music of someone like Sandy Owen. Again, anybody who knows me well enough to follow me on Facebook knows that what I'm doing on this uh, first track of the day experiment reflects a broad range. Lots of people feel like they've got a variety of music they listen to. I don't meet very many people who've got the variety I've got. I don't meet very many people whose music collection peacefully coexists with groups like Black Sabbath, Dead Kennedys, Public Enemy, and Sandy Owen, our different drummer this week. So this is an episode that started by promising big things that I'm sure I didn't quite deliver. I dabbled with the question of time, the problem of evil and pain, science versus religion, certainly spent time on the age of the universe, dealt with the retroactive power of faith to a degree, and talked about dogma versus experience in the way that people actually understand theology. And I started with an article that was built around a few quotes from Thoreau, and his writings about nature, and Walden in particular. Maybe the right way to handle this particular inappropriate conversation is to end with a quote from Thoreau. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music he hears, however measured or far away. Thanks for listening.